All right. Good morning again, everyone. We are in Revelation chapter 8. Hard to believe this is our 35th message in the book of Revelation. We're just getting started. Last week, we we did a bit of um, review and, and just touched on where we are in our study and we're transitioning from Revelation chapter 7, which concludes the seven seals, to, to Revelation chapter 8, which brings us to the seven trumpets. And just a reminder of the emphasis that we looked at in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 as it deals with the seals. The seals are a reminder, and the emphasis that we find in chapter 6 and 7 is that God has sealed his church and protected them in the midst of tribulation and judgment. Um, last week, we looked at the first five verses, and I want to read those for us just, just to be reminded as we look at context this morning. Revelation chapter 8, if you have your Bible, turn there. Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's interesting to me, and it's a good reminder, as we opened up our study in the book of Revelation, there is a promised blessing to the church. In Revelation, um, I would say, to be fair, has been greatly abused over the years by those who have tried to warp it and twist it and take it out of context. And it's, it's a very easy book to do that with. And it's important that we pro- apply the, the principles of hermeneutics as we study the book of Revelation. And I want to just remind you of the first five verses that we looked at last week. The Lamb opens the seventh seal. The picture of the Lamb here is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in symbol um, form. The Lamb opens the seventh seal. There's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 30 minutes of silence in heaven. And leading up to this, starting in chapter 4, we're brought into the throne room of heaven. We've called it the control tower of heaven, if you will. It's taking our perspective off of the sufferings of this life. And this, this is written to seven real churches who are experiencing real trials, real tribulation. If you are a saint and you are here this morning, you know that this is real in our lives. God has not called us to an easy life when he called us to Christ. Remember the disciples as they saw conversions in the early church were very faithful to remind them that these new converts would through the scripture says much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Christian life is not easy. God didn't call us to a life of ease. And there's a challenge that's issued to the seven churches 
and a reminder to persevere. And that this letter, this book, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, it's not about dragons and marks and beasts. Yes, they're all mentioned, but the book of Revelation is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when our focus is appropriately put there, the book of Revelation is of immense value and blessing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The silence in heaven is intended to emphasize the importance of the prayers of the saints and that the wait is short. And it's an encouragement to the how long question that's brought up in Revelation chapter 6. In verse 10, it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The reminder here of this short pause that we see starting um, this chapter, finishing the seven seals, by the way, as we transition to the seven trumpets, is a reminder that this period of time is short. The question that is asked by suffering saints in Revelation chapter six is how long? One of the questions that is frequently expounded on in in regard to the study of the book of Revelation is when is Lord coming? You ever seen that? Heard that? When's Lord coming? And there's jockeying a position from, from different commentators and quote unquote authorities who claim to know when the Lord Jesus is coming back. There's just one problem with that. Scripture doesn't tell us that, does it? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that the day of the Lord is near. In Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel 1.15. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Obadiah. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Did the Old Testament writers and prophets get it wrong? What do you think? They get it wrong when they say that the day of the Lord is near. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he responds to this. He says, now, this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. What will they say? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water 
and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact. And this is Peter addressing the context of the Old Testament prophets when they say that the Lord's day is near. He said, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is this one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Now, this verse frequently used by universalists to claim that the desire of the Lord God is that every man everywhere be saved. Well, if that were true, every man everywhere would be saved. But the context is this. He is patient toward you. Well, who is the you? Well, Second Peter chapter 3, Peter writes and says, I am writing to you, beloved. The Lord is slow, or is not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what is Peter saying? What is holding back the the near return of the Lord? The repentance of his people. This is on his timeline. And then, by the way, it's not a plan B. He's not delaying. And verse 10 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? When we get to our study in the book of Revelation, John repeats the same theme in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. In verse 3, he repeats the same thing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. Do you see a reoccurring pattern here? Revelation 3.11, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Revelation 22.10, and we're a ways away from that chapter, but it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. It is an encouragement to the saints. As we look at the beginning of this chapter, that while they are in persecution, tribulation, when we read through the letters to the seven churches, they are being abused in this world. And they're crying out in Revelation chapter 6, Lord, how long until you vindicate your people? And the Lord says, I'm coming soon. Be patient. Verses 2 through 4 of Revelation 8 remind us that the petitions of the saints matter. One of the the great deceptions that we face as Christians. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with this in your own life, but have you ever thought that your prayer doesn't matter? 
say, no, I, I would never think such a thing. I'm much more spiritually mature to think such a crazy thought as that. Well, one of the lies that the wicked one will cast towards us is that we're not worthy. By the way, if God is sovereign, and he is, then why is my prayer even relevant? Why should I even pray? Besides, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to stand in the presence of God. I have no right to come boldly to his throne because to do so would be presumptuous because you are a filthy sinner. These are the things that Satan will tell us, and they're quite effective sometimes, aren't they? Because a lot of times our prayer can be hindered because we forget the fact that because of Christ, our prayers are precious in the sight of the Father. And Revelation chapter 2 or chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, remind us of that incredibly important point. There is a, a period of quiet after great singing by a multitude, a host of people that no man could number. So you have this loud praise to the Heavenly Father, to the Lamb, the Redeemer, that's followed by absolute quiet for 30 minutes. Not a word. And the picture here is that the prayers of the saints are being offered up. And here is imagery of of the temple, the tabernacle, if you will, uh, the very presence of God. We looked at last week and answered the question, what smells good to God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The fragrant aroma is none other than the mediating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you pray... And the scripture says we have a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our prayer is a fragrant aroma that's pleasing to the Father. That should encourage us to pray. Does that mean we always pray as we ought to? No, it doesn't. But we have a, a mediator, an advocate that intercedes for us. And then verse 5 is a picture of this answered prayer after the intercessory work of Christ. And you notice in those verses that it's offered with the prayer of the saints, this aroma, if you will. We see the answered prayer. It moves to action. What do we mean by that? Well, God not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And he has commanded us to pray. Why? Because prayer matters. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Doesn't matter? No, the scripture said it it avails much. The angel, verse 5, took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The picture is this is God's response. He's moved on behalf of his people, the pleading of his people for relief, for vindication, for justice. 
you look at slide two, um, Jesse, if you'll go there, um, here's what we want to cover this morning. The first trumpet in verse six through seven, the second trumpet verses eight through nine. I, I know this is an imaginative, imaginative outline. Hopefully you will stay awake this morning. I'll, I'll do my best to ensure that you do. And then we'll come to the Lord's table after um, we complete our study. Look at verses six and seven with me this morning. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. What do we make of that? Well, there's all sorts of speculation, conjecture. First thing, I want to make some observations about this passage. And I want to remind you that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are not chronological events, meaning first the seals happen and secondly, the trumpets happen and then third, the bowls or the vials, as they're called, happen. But this is a different view of the same thing. And I'll use the analogy one more time. Forgive me for overusing it. But when you go to a wedding and they hand you a camera, you're all at the same event watching the same thing. But they ask you to take pictures from your table, your perspective. This is all talking about the same thing with different perspective and different emphasis. When we looked at the seven seals that the lamb opened, the emphasis was on the saints being protected while God brings about earthly judgment, not the final judgment that comes a little bit later. And we looked at that with the opening of the sixth seal. But in this life, there's catastrophe. There are very real things that happen that are tragic. And and our perspective from God's view is to understand why and how those happen. And understand that they are sovereign appointed, sovereignly appointed from the throne for our good and his glory. What is the period of time here that this is talking about? Well, this is written to seven literal churches, as I just mentioned, in Asia Minor with present day, meaning application to them at that time. And certainly this is dealing with the time period between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return very much applicable to us as well. How are we to understand the book of Revelation? Well, symbolism is the main use of language here. We understand this. We're going to come to the Lord's table this morning. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Do we mean that literally? We see the cracker, the wafer, if you will, symbolically. We understand this and We understand the book of Revelation to be parabolic in the sense that it's teaching us through the use of parable. Um, A parable is comparing one thing against another. Um, For example, in Matthew chapter 13, 24, Jesus, who taught in parables, said this. he, He put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. See, you see the use of the word like there. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. If you look up the word like in the book of Revelation, it's used 63 times. Revelation should be taken literally, figuratively. Does that make sense? You're confused? It's literal in a figurative way. Um, For example, to use an analogy, Jesus said in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's symbolism. Is Jesus a literal door with hinges, a knob, <laughs> a key? No, we understand this to be figurative language, but It's absolutely literal truth because there is no way to the Father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is absolutely true. But we see the use of symbolism, and we need to understand that as we study the book of Revelation. I want you to notice that the seven trumpets are very reminiscent of the judgments that are poured out on Egypt. As we read this, the seventh plague in Exodus chapter 9, brings upon Pharaoh and Egypt hail. This is one of the plagues that God brings on the nation of Egypt. And it's a reminder that God is preparing his bride for a mass exodus from this world at the final judgment in which he will take his bride to be with him. Turn with me in your Bibles for those of you that have them. Exodus chapter 9 In verse 13, I want you to see the correlation here, because there's some truths that we need to understand in order for this to make sense to us. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. First understanding or point to understand here is that God is judging Egypt so that he is seen as the supreme God of the universe. Every one of these plagues will will be in some way, shape, or form in a, a a put down, if you will, of all of Egypt's gods. All of the gods that Egypt's, Egypt worships will be addressed by the, the 10 plagues. Verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I would have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been 
in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Here is a picture of the warning that God gives Egypt. Now, God could have sent hail without any warning, but he gives them an advanced warning. Why? Look at verse 19 of Exodus 9. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Did God give Egypt warning of the judgment that was coming? Absolutely, he did. Then look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel was or were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, this time I have sinned. The Lord is right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And what does Moses say to him? Verse 29, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. Verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. God's judgment, I want you to see this. God's judgment reveals the state of the heart of humanity. It reveals it. What was the state of Pharaoh's heart? It was hard. The scripture says those who feared God took shelter. They heard the warning, and there is the warning of judgment, and this is what the seven trumpets are all about. It is a warning of coming judgment to the world so that those who are unconverted might be spared and repent, and God is gracious enough to warn sinners to repent and be saved. I want you to notice also that there is a restraint in the judgment scene with the seals and the trumpets. There are fractions of humanity here that are impacted as we read this. And and same applied in the judgment brought on Egypt because the land of Goshen was untouched. And those who heard or those who obeyed or feared God were spared. God's restraining grace leads some sinners to repentance. Um, I do not like preaching funerals. And for um, reasons only the Lord knows about, uh, had three or four funerals within the last year to preach. And they're always sad, especially when you're dealing with unbelievers. Um, and the last funeral that I preached, it was for my uncle. I reminded some of my extended family 
as much as they didn't see it, the fact that they were sitting at that funeral on that day, hearing God's word and his warning to repent was nothing but the grace of God displayed to them. It sounds odd to say and probably more odd to hear, but the grace of God is demonstrated in what we see or what we witness in judgment. I I remind you of Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that time who told him, meaning Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And he answered them. This is Jesus speaking to those who um, wanted Jesus to speak against Pilate and his wickedness. And certainly Pilate was wicked. And they wanted Jesus to speak up and speak out. And this is Jesus's response when they bring this great crime to Jesus's attention. Certainly he knew. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus telling them? Every tragedy that we see in this life, and, and we can talk about crime, we can, we can talk about natural disaster, they're all intended for those who witness those things. And you never hear this in the media. We, we have shootings and crime all the time. I've never heard one talking head in the media get up and say, this is God's warning to, to us to repent. Have you ever heard anybody say that? You, you'd be hard-pressed to find pastors that will say it. Because the last thing people want to hear when they see a tragedy is, this is God's warning to you to repent. But guess what? That's what Jesus said. He says, there were those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Here's a natural disaster. A tower fell. A building fell. An architectural failure, and 18 people died. Where's Jesus' sympathy? Where's his outpouring of love? It's right here. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. One of the most loving things that the Savior says in in the face of great tragedy is, this is God's grace to remind you to repent. This is his warning. Wake up. Be aware that this could be you. This deserves to be you. We see the emphasis of the seven seals. And and Jesus touches on this. When we talk about what the seven seals are referring to, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, he sits, he's sitting on the, the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And notice his response. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. 
what are the beginning of birth pains? It's talking about the contractions, if you will. We know that when birth pains come, what? Baby will soon follow. The birth will soon take place. Don't know yet when, but we know approximately it's, it's drawing close. Time is close. The releasing of the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we saw in Revelation chapter 6 is exactly that. It is a picture of temporal judgment that God brings on humanity to remind them that the day of great judgment is soon to come. These are the birth pains. These are the contractions, if you will. So who do these trumpets warn? We need to understand that by way of context. The trumpets seals protect, trumpets warn. Who are they warning? Who are are these series of events being directed to? Well, if you look in verse 13 of Revelation 8, it says, Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Whenever we see the term those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation, it's talking about earth dwellers. It is a negative moniker applied to the unbelieving. Well, why do we say that? Don't we live here? We're on earth. Well, the idea of an earth dweller is somebody that resides here. They have put roots down. This is where they belong. They're not looking for anything after this. Is that the experience of the believer? Is this all we have? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, there's a contrast between the, the saints, those who believe, and those who dwell on the earth. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patience, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 6, 10, they cried out with a loud voice. This is the saints who had been martyred. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on who? Those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 11, verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. This is talking about the two witnesses and and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're reminded that Abraham, by faith, was looking for an inheritance. What kind of inheritance was Abraham looking for? Well, in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And listen to this, and having acknowledged that they were strangers, foreigners, sojourners on the earth. In verse 16 of Hebrews 11, it says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What is he telling the body of Christ? You don't belong here. 
This is not your final home. You're not citizens here. Your citizens are in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul talks about our being sealed by the Spirit of God, given life from above, being regenerated, verse 6 of Ephesians 2, we're raised up with him. And and where are we placed? We are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We can't be seated with him in heavenly places if we're earth dwellers. There's a direct contrast here. So the warning of the seven trumpets is to those who dwell on the earth. That is the unconverted sinner. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, or verse 20 says this, excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So to our text, verse seven, the first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail, fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. What we're seeing with the sounding of the trumpets is the effects of what is brought to pass with the four horsemen. And again, this is the same, this is a picture of the same thing from a different perspective. We see the effect of the four horsemen released. A third of the earth was burned up. Notice we're talking here in fractions. Third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees and all the grass was burned up. What is the picture here? God is saying there is a limitation on this judgment. I have set its bounds. It can go no further. But we begin to see the effects of the four horsemen, the effects of war. There's a term that we, we've we heard before called a scorched earth policy. Have you ever heard that? <clears throat> the policy of scorched earth warfare is that of removing or destroying everything that might be useful for an invading enemy, especially by fire. In fact, Israel was told not to use this methodology in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. God tells Israel, when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. The picture here of the four horsemen being released is a picture of warfare, bloodshed, death, and famine that results from those things. And we see this being carried out in the affairs of this life. We are under, as we speak, um, a threat of warfare, are we not? For if you read the headline of the news, we could be imminently in World War III before we know it. Wars, rumors of wars, this is nothing new. I was I was doing some reading on what was called Holodomor. Have you ever heard of that? Um, Holodomor is a Ukrainian term for hunger, Holod, H-O-L-O-D, and extermination. And about a little less than 100 years ago, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, um, exterminated 
almost 4 million of his own people. And he did that through the collectivization of agriculture where he seized private, private property, <clears throat> claimed it for himself, said we can do it better. By the way, socialism or communism has always failed everywhere it's been tried and there are bodies to show for it. But Ukraine has always been known as the breadbasket of Europe. And we're seeing it right now with, with what's going on um, in this war. The famine that is coming to Europe, especially next winter, is going to be horrific. You don't hear a lot about it. But the net result of war is death and famine. These are the picture of the four horsemen. And the result of that is that people will die. The trumpet is a warning, and it's well-established in Scripture. I just want to give you a couple of references here for that. Trumpets were used to summon the people together in Numbers chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for the summoning of the congregation and for breaking of camp. It was used in Numbers 31, verse 6, to sound the war alarm. Trumpets were used to announce the king's visitation. We find that in 2 Kings eleven fourteen. Trumpets were used to praise the Lord after significant moments. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10, there is the, the pronouncement of trumpets. We have an example in Exodus chapter 19 through 24, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, what accompanied, accompanied it? The sounding of trumpets. So what is the picture here in the book of Revelation? Well, it is a high-definition um, audio-visual to remind us to listen, to sit up straight, to pay attention, because something very important is being pronounced. This is prophetic and authoritative, and it's the declaration of the King of Kings. And it's a reminder that we need to listen to the warning. In Ezekiel chapter 33, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land. Who brings the sword upon a land? Who does that? Well, we talk about nations fighting against nations. But the reality of it is, is God sovereignly orchestrates his purpose, his divine decrees in the affairs of men. We think that there are human decision makers. Certainly there are people that are making these decisions, but God is, is orchestrating all of this for his own glory. He says, when I bring a sword upon a land, and he's talking about judgment against Israel. And the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees a sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, this is the picture here that's being presented in Revelation chapter 8. Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. What if the watchman sees the, Lord, the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people 
are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. A question this morning, and I, I touched on this last week. We often are guilty of looking for the next election to somehow provide a remedy for our culture, for our country. And God is God's warning our nation. He's warning us right now. When with the imminent threat of war upon our nation, the trumpet is sounding. But whose job is it to blow the trumpet? Whose job is it to blow the trumpet? Ours. We're talking about the proclamation of the gospel, the declared word of God. It is the church's responsibility, and that's why so much emphasis is given on the sealing of the saints. God is very careful to remind the church that they are protected. They, we, the church is protected. We are sealed by the spirit of God. We may be martyred. We may lose our lives. We may lose all of our possessions. We may lose our freedoms. We may lose everything that we hold dear in this life. And we're still untouchable because we are kept in the hand of God. That is an encouragement to us. And it should also free us up to do what he has called us to do, which is herald the gospel. To be trumpets. This is also an encouragement to the church and its suffering. I want you to see that with the four horsemen, there was a a limit to one quarter. A picture of 25%, if you will, a fraction. Here, with the seven trumpets, we see the term one-third used. So we go from a quarter to one-third. There's a progression here. And then when we get to the bowls or vials, it will be complete. We've, we've got a, a partial judgment that we see, followed by a harsher judgment, followed by a picture of complete and total judgment. When the vials of God are poured out, this is a picture of the final wrath of God. And there's a reminder here as well for the church, and that is that the judgment of wicked man is coming. Have you ever felt like it was um, it was unfair? You see the wicked prosper. Why did the wicked seem to prosper? These these things, by the way, are not always what they seem to be. But when you're sitting in the land of Goshen and you're a slave and you're looking at the the royalty and the prosperity of Egypt, do you think they ever wondered why do they prosper? Why are we in bonds? Jeremiah brings this question up in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. 
Asaph, the, the songwriter for David, says in Psalm 73, he brings up the same issue. He seems, and, and, and if you think about what David went through for a great period of his life as he's waiting for the coronation of the kingdom, he's living in caves. And here the enemy, Saul, is hunting him down, prospering, eating well. And Asaph says, this doesn't seem fair, Lord. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The picture there, by the way, the measure of beauty is they are well fed. They're doing well. He said they are not in trouble as others are. Everything seems to be going right for the unbelieving. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is God watching? Is he even paying attention to what the wicked are doing? Because from my perspective, speaking of Asaph, they are prospering. And the people that are pure in heart, God's saints seem to be suffering. Why? Well, he answers the question in verse 17. And as I said, things, the book of Revelation reminds us things are not as they seem to be. Verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then... I discern their end. Listen to this. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But it is, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It is an incredibly important reminder for us to understand the fact that the wicked may seem to prosper in this life. Don't be envious of them. I ask you this question in hindsight. Would you rather have been a Goshenite or an Egyptian? Knowing what you know now, where would you have rather been? Say, well, the Israelites that lived in Goshen went to make bricks every single day. They were under the scourge of the whip every single day. Didn't seem fair. The Egyptians prospered. Knowing what we know now, which would you have rather have been? Things are not what they seem to be. And we're reminded by this passage that God is going to judge the ungodly. It's coming. And it should be a warning to us 
the second trumpet sounds, verse 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were, de- were destroyed. But what do we make of this? Again, this is a, a parallel with Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, which is the first plague, where water is turned to blood, the water of the Nile. Now, what did Egypt think of the Nile? What did they think of the Nile? Pretty important to them, wasn't it? They worshipped it. And what does God do? He takes their source of life that they worship, and he turns it to blood. Exodus 7, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord and God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, but this you you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Can you imagine drinking that? Can you imagine getting up to wash your face and pouring out blood in your hands? Moses lifts up his staff and all the water of the Nile turns into blood. Verse 21, and the fish of the Nile die. The Nile stank so the Egyptians could not drink water from it. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. The kindness of God had not led him to repentance. His heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not even take this to heart. Think about how ruthless this man was to turn his back on his nation and walk back into his house, did not even take it to heart. Verse 24, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Well, what is this passage talking about? What is the second trumpet talking about? The angel blows his trumpet and something like, there is the, 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 the word again, something like a great mountain burning with fire. We use scripture to interpret scripture so that we're not just going willy-nilly and coming up with our own thing. What does scripture tell us about this? Well, this harkens back to Jeremiah chapter 21. I promise I'm almost done. Jeremiah chapter 51, excuse me, verse 25. Listen to this. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. Now, this is God warning Babylon of judgment coming. In Jeremiah 51, verse 25, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Verse 41, 
how Babylon is taken and the praise of the whole earth seized, how Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is converted or covered with its tumultuous waves. I want to read um, a passage from a exemplary work. Um, if you haven't, you don't have this in your library, you should absolutely get this. This is The Triumph of the Lamb. It's a commentary on Revelation by Dennis Johnson. I want to read these words regarding the second trumpet. He says, when the trumpet sounded, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Volcanic activity around the Mediterranean basin, especially reports of the eruptions of Vesuvius that buried Pompeii and devastated the Bay of Naples in AD 79, would have magnified the horrifying vividness of this vision in the minds of Revelation's first listeners. But John is not merely giving a poetic description of a volcanic volcanic explosion or a meteor's fall. The heavenly origin of this fiery judgment is, is implied. The burning mountain turns one-third of the sea to blood, leading to the death of one-third of the creatures living in the sea and the destruction of one-third of the vessels on it. The order implies that the blood produced by the fiery mountain is not that of the sea creatures, for they die as a result of the transformation of the sea's waters to blood, this scene partially imitates the first plague on Egypt in which the waters of the, the Nile were turned to blood, killing the fish in the river. It also alludes to God's word of judgment on Babylon, the destroying mountain that the Lord will make a burnt out mountain and submerge in the waves of the sea. John sees in symbolic form the disruption of the trade network that kept the Babylon of his day, Rome's sea-centered empire afloat. Whether through sea battles or natural disasters, the Mediterranean's, Mediterranean's waters will be bloodied. Its fruitfulness is a source of fresh fish fowl. Its armadas of merchant ships crippled. When the harlot Babylon's utter destruction is revealed in a later vision, the merchants who had enriched themselves by trade with her lament, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. The great city is not only a latter-day incarnation of Babylon, the place of Israel's captivity, it was also a new Egypt, the house of Israel's slavery. The bloodying of the sea and the death of its creatures parallel the bloodying of the Nile in the time of Moses. The worldly powers that oppress God's true Israel, listen to this, the worldly powers that oppress God's true Israel are to be taken at the source of their confidence. Again, however, the judgment of the sea is limited as God's wrath remains restrained. This is a picture of God dealing with the idols of this world. The world system, if you will, the Babylon. In the picture of, of Israel's day, Egypt is is another picture of, of Babylon in the time of, of uh, John's writing, referring to Rome. But this is a picture of God bringing to nothing the idols of this world. Look at the third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. 
Here again is an allusion to the turning of the Nile into blood, which was worshipped by the the Egyptians as its source of life. God judges this God, little g, as an idol, and those who worship the creature rather than the creator. These first four trumpets all impact what is the primary focus of our culture. Notice that the picture here um, and the effect of it is all on nature. The four horsemen go about releasing war and hatred and stealing away peace, bringing about great bloodshed and the effect of that on the natural earth, if you will, the environment is profound. And I, I couldn't help but think about as we as we look at idols and what our culture worships, is our environment not preeminent in the minds of our culture? It's it's changed a great deal over my lifetime, I think. But in in uh, 1970, there was a book written called The Environmental Handbook, and it was published by a group called the Friends of the Earth. And they specifically prepared public educators to use this information during the first Earth Day. Do you realize that was 1970? That's how long Earth Day has been a thing. And they said, quote, what we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the man-made or the man-nature relationship. More science and more technology are not going to get us out of the present ecological crisis until, listen to this, until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. There's a novelist or writer by the name of Michael Crichton. You've probably heard of him. He wrote um, Jurassic Park. Anybody ever heard of I got somebody's attention. Start talking about T-Rexes and people wake up. (laughs) Michael Crichton gave a talk to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in 2003. Listen to this. His speech was entitled Environmentalism is a Religion. And here's an excerpt from his speech. He said this today. One of the most powerful religions in the Western world is environmentalism. Environmentalism seems to be the religion of choice for urban atheists. Why do I say it's a religion? Well, just look at the beliefs. If you look carefully, you see that the environmentalism is, in fact, a perfect 21st century remapping of traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs and myths. Now, Michael Crichton here is not advocating for Christianity. He's just making an observation, and I think it is an astute one. He says this, there is an initial Eden, a paradise, a state of grace and unity with nature. There's a fall from grace into a state of pollution as a result of eating from the tree of knowledge. And as a result of our actions, there is a judgment day coming for us all. By the way. Are we, do we hear that all the time? Judgment Day is coming. Um, well, in the 1970s, it was, it was global cooling. Then it was global warming. Now it's just climate change because the story keeps changing. But that's the judgment day he's referring to. We're all energy sinners doomed to die unless we seek salvation, which is now called sustainability. It's by the way, that's impacted every area of life. If you work for a a corporation of any size, you will hear that ad nauseum. 
sustainability, sustainability. We are all energy centers doomed to die unless we seek salvation, which is now called sustainability. Sustainability is salvation in the church of the environment, just as organic food is its communion. That pesticide-free wafer that the right people with the right beliefs imbibe. Eden, the fall of man, the loss of grace, the coming doomsday, these are deeply held mythic structures. They are profoundly conservative beliefs. They may even be hardwired in the brain for all I know. I certainly don't want to talk anybody out of them as I don't want to talk anybody out of the belief that Jesus Christ is the son of God who rose from the dead. But the reason I don't want to talk anybody out of these beliefs is that I know that I can't talk anybody out of them. These are not facts that can be argued. These are issues. Listen to this. These are issues of faith. And so it is, sadly, with environmentalism. Increasingly, it seems facts aren't necessary because the tenets of environmentalism are all about belief. It's about whether you are going to be a sinner or saved whether you're going to be one of the people on the side of salvation or on the side of doom, whether you're going to be one of us or one of them. Am I exaggerating to make a point? I'm afraid not, because we know a lot more about the world than we did 40 or 50 years ago, and what we know now is not supportive of certain core environmental myths, yet the myths do not die. One of the observations that you make about this religion is he he misses a key important fact, and then where's the sacrifice for environmentalism? It's there. One of the key components of this altar that our culture worships at is abortion. One of the key components of environmentalism is Malthusian population control. There is a sacrificial victim. It's population. Say, well, Danny, you're exaggerating a little. Well, there is the satanic temple opening in New Mexico at which you may have an abortion and it serves two purposes. It's a satanic means of worship carried out. And this is quote unquote healthcare where you can sacrifice your baby. You say, well, this sounds absurd. It's paganism. It's demon worship. In revelation chapter nine, verse 20, Listen to this. This is true of our culture today. And one of the things that Satan is really good at is rebranding. I've worked for some companies that weren't doing well, and the way they try to save themselves and pull themselves out of the proverbial ditch is they rebrand. Satan is a master rebrander. Revelation 9.20, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. The warning of scripture, Jeremiah 51 says, flee from the midst of Babylon, let everyone save his life, be not cut off in her punishment, for this time is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. God is warning the world that he's coming to judge it. And we look at all the different idols. I think it was Calvin that said the human heart is an idol factory. 
And we can look at the idols that this world worships and, and rightly condemn them. But you know, there are Christian idols too. We are just as guilty many times of worshiping idols of our own making. Maybe it's ministry. You ever thought about that? How many pastors have sacrificed their families, their wives for ministry? Maybe it's our families. We make our families into idols. It's good to work. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We as Christian men are so prone to making work our idol. There are good things that God has commanded us. By the way, nature is a good thing. It's under the curse of sin. And God is going to completely destroy this world in judgment one day, but there's still glimpses of the beauty of the original creation. But it's worshiped now. The warning here for us is a reminder that, that we can easily be caught up in idolatry. Well, how do we know if we are? I want to close with this this morning. When, when we read Psalm 73 at the end of this, after Asaph um, cries out to God regarding the, the success of the unbelieving, he ends with this thought in verse 25. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You want to know how to identify an idol? When things get really tough for us, when times are really hard, what do we resort to? Where do we go for comfort? Do we, do we resort to prayer and taking our concerns, our anxieties, our worries to God? Or how, how do we deal with those things? And many times that answer is an answer as to what our idol is. But the warning is clear. The trumpet is blasting. God is reminding us that he is coming to judge this, this world. And the question for you and I this morning, as we close and we come to the Lord's table, is what is your refuge? What are you depending on? What are you relying on? If it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's a false idol. And it will not stand the test of time. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to remind you that it is the Lord's table. It's not the table of Word of Grace Baptist Church. If you're a believer here this morning visiting, the table is open to you. The warning of Scripture, though, and we always do this, and it's important. When Scripture gives a warning for us to glance over it and think it's unimportant, it's dangerous. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11 warns us to let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We we don't have what is referred to as closed communion at Word of Grace Baptist Church. But scripture is very clear that the Lord's table is not for the unbelieving. It's not. If you're here this morning and you think that you are right with God because your parents 
are believers or because you pray to prayer or you're living a good life, the scripture warns us not to devalue or take the body of Christ lightly. Verse 27, by the way, that's what it means to take, drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. None of us, by the way, are worthy. When we think about ourselves in our um, our, our own worthiness outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of us are worthy. But this is taking this lightly. And so um, it's a serious matter. It's also a celebratory matter. When we come to the Lord's table, we rejoice as saints that he has forgiven our sin. That is a cause for exuberant celebration. But let's not take it for granted. Let's not take the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ um, for granted. For For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning of the body, eats and drinks, listen to this, judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It is our practice to take a moment to pray pray and to silently reflect on what the Lord did for us, um, what he has done on our behalf. And then I'm going to ask Jesse and Stephen if you would come up and help serve this morning. Let's pray first and then Guys, if you'll come up and help um, serve, we'll we'll proceed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the invitation that we have to fellowship with you at your table. Lord, we confess to you that this is just a cracker and grape juice, but it's symbolic of what you have done on our behalf. This does not become your body, does not turn into your body. But this is a reminder for each one of us. And you said that we're to do this until you return. We thank you, Lord, because we're not worthy to sit at your table. And yet you have invited us as guests because you've given us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to be clothed in. Father, I pray this morning that you would superintend the administration of your table. Father, that you would not allow anyone to partake that should not. You would guard it. And Father, for the the believers here that partake of this this morning, that you would cause them to rejoice. This is a means of your grace that you have provided for your church to cause us to rejoice in what you have done on our behalf. We're thankful for it this morning, Father, and we praise you for it this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.